Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have had the privilege of coming here to worship you and to sing songs in praise to you, and I pray that now as we open your word that you would help us to approach it with open hearts and open minds so that we can hear what your Spirit is saying to us through the Bible today. I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. So, do you ever feel like you are just spinning your wheels in your life? Do you work to find satisfaction, but the results are never quite enough? Do you buy things, but you find that they don't bring you quite as much joy as you thought that they would? On a larger scale, this kind of expectation versus reality realization leads, to, uh, leads some people to have what we call a midlife crisis. Uh, it's so common that we just have a term for it in our culture. And that's when we get to our, you know, usually late 30s, early 40s, and you take a look at your life and you say, ooh, this is just not quite what I was hoping for in life. And you realize that all these things you've been working toward have been ultimately disappointing, and you need to make some changes to life. And so you buy a sports car, or you get some new clothes, or you join a gym, or you change career paths, and you're hoping that you will find the missing meaningfulness and success that you've been looking for in life. Most people don't even know what it is that's missing in their lives, but they know that something is missing, and so they start exploring around and trying to figure it out. For a lot of Christians, even going to church isn't helping either. They just don't find that being in church is providing what they need, so maybe they change churches looking for one that will give them what they're searching for. And this situation is described in the Bible in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6. He's, uh, God says, You planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. That last one especially uh, hits home right now with uh, inflation and gas prices and all that. We earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And this is one of those times when the Bible is being both literal and metaphorical at the same time. Right? These things were actual physical realities in the lives of the people in Haggai's day. They were seeing disappointing yields from their crops, and they were struggling to get enough to eat and having a hard time keeping warm. But these things are also symbolic of a deeper reality. Because even in times of financial prosperity, we find that often we feel that we just can't get enough, can't be full and stay warm and be satisfied with the results of our labor. Now, in order to fully understand the Bible's answers to this problem, we need to, uh, to see part of the story that this discussion in Haggai is a part of. So as you know, we, we are in a series here uh, the last few weeks called Comeback Kids, which is about how God's people had been sent into exile, and then they come back to the promised land. Um, the story is that God's people had sinned over many generations. They had failed to keep the covenant that, uh, that God had offered them. 
They did not stay faithful to God. Instead, they sought to fill their needs by worshiping other gods alongside the one true God. And so God sent the Babylonians to conquer them and take them away into exile. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed completely, and it became an uninhabited ruin. And most importantly, the temple of God was destroyed completely. This was especially important because the worship of God that the Jewish people had been taught by by God on Mount Sinai as they were traveling from Egypt up to the Promised Land, that worship was, was centered around the sacrifices that were made at the temple. At first they had the tabernacle, which was kind of a portable temple, but then King Solomon built the great temple in Jerusalem, and, and that temple was the only place where sacrifices could legitimately be offered to God. And now the temple has been destroyed. And so for 70 years, they've been living in Babylon with no temple and therefore no sacrifices. But God was merciful to his people and he forgave their sins and he brought them back from exile. And they were able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. And if we look at the the book of Ezra chapter 1, we see part of that story. Starting in verse 5, it says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. So who does it say left Babylon to return? It says, everyone whose heart God had moved. And what were they going up to do? They were going to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And not everybody left. Some stayed behind. But those who stayed behind assisted them financially because God was working in their hearts too. They also wanted to see the temple rebuilt and sacrifices resume. And so they gave money and goods and livestock and all these things to help make it happen. And when these people arrived in Jerusalem, they pretty quickly got to work. In Ezra chapter 3, starting the verse 2, it says, Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals to the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So resuming the sacrifices, that was the the top priority for these guys. And so the first thing they did when they got back to Israel is they rebuilt the altar. 
And with the altar to offer sacrifices on, they were able to reinstate much of the worship of God that they had been unable to do um, during the exile, and, uh, and they were able to follow the Mosaic law. But the main part of the whole project, the reason they went back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple, and they hadn't started on that yet. But it didn't take too long before they did begin on the temple as well. It says in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets, and the Levites, who were the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David the king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. So, uh, God had stirred in the hearts of his people to return from Babylon back home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now they'd returned, they'd made preparations for the work, and that work on the temple had begun, and they were doing what God called them to do. But they soon found that the work was not going to be easy. First problem was that there were other people who were living in the region around there, and they came to them and said they wanted to help with rebuilding the temple. Well, that sounds very nice, right? Except there was one big problem. These people were polytheists, that meaning that they believed in many different gods. And so these people heard about the temple being rebuilt, and they thought, oh, this is good. We would like to have this ancient god of Jerusalem also on our side, as well as all these other gods that we're also worshiping. We will we'll, uh, we'll also join in with worshiping this one, too. But that kind of thinking was exactly what had led to the exile in the first place. Mixing the worship of the one true God with other religions was a sinful practice. And so the comeback kids said, no, only those of us who are 100% dedicated to the worship of the one true God will be working on this temple. And so those people who had claimed that they wanted to worship God and wanted to help with this thing quickly became his enemies instead. And they did everything that they could to discourage the rebuilding of the temple. And that included uh, poisoning the opinion of the kings of the empire against the people who were trying to rebuild the temple so that the king actually was misled into commanding them to stop. And so at the end of Ezra chapter 4, it tells us, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, it turned out that that problem of, uh, of, uh, with the kings of the empire and that, that could be solved. Uh, and after some years of stagnation on the building, when the people determined we really need to build this temple, uh, they were able to send a letter to the king and get legal permission to finish the work. Not really that big of a deal. So why didn't they do that right away? Why did they allow bureaucratic red tape, which turned out to be fairly easily taken care of, why did they allow them to stop 
allow that to stop them from working? Well, to answer that question, we go to the prophet Haggai. And Haggai uh, was sent from God to uh, bring a message from God to, uh, to these people who had stopped working on the temple. When God's people failed to finish the work that God had called them to do, he sent messages through Haggai. And Haggai is interesting because he gives four specific dates when the word of God came to him, right down to the exact day of the four different times when the word of God came to him for the people of Israel. And here's the first one is right here in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1, where it says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of God came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord, verse 3, came to through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Rarely is that instruction given when God just wants people to realize how great they're doing. <laughs> right? Give careful thought to your ways is a challenge. Uh, and so what is wrong with the ways of these people? Well, according to God, they're saying to each other, it's not time to rebuild the temple yet. They still know that they came back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. They haven't forgotten that the temple needs to be rebuilt. It's just that it isn't time for that right now. We've got other things. We'll get to that, but not right now. And God responds with a rhetorical question. God says, oh, okay, it's not yet time to rebuild my house? Oh, okay, is it time for you to build your own paneled houses? Is that what it's time for? Is it time for you to live in luxury while my house is a ruin? Is that what time it is? And yes, this is an example of God using some fairly sassy sarcasm uh, to make his point, which is a fairly common thing in the prophets, actually, if you read through the Old Testament prophets. God uses a lot of sarcasm with his people. And the real problem here, what God is pointing out, is that the reason the temple stopped being built is not because there was opposition and the king told them not to build it. Although I'm sure that uh, having some opposition made it a lot easier for them to uh, give up on the temple project. But when the work that God called them to do turned out to be difficult, when it was going to require them to plead their case before the king and to endure the enmity of the people around them, they decided it's going to be a lot easier to just work on our own houses instead. And of course, the mention of, of, of paneled houses here shows that we're not just talking about these people wanting basic shelter from the rain and the snow, right? They had that already, but now they wanted to make some improvements 
They wanted nice houses. Comfortable houses with decorative paneling on the walls. And if they had to choose between having a nicer home and the hard work that God had called them to do, their priority was on their own house, not the house of God. And what was the result of this priority on their own house while neglecting the house of God? Well, the result was what we read at the beginning of the sermon here today. Verse 6, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. So here it is. You expected much, it turned out to be little. You did all these things, hoping it would bring you a good life, hoping that it would bring you happiness, but it didn't. You expected much, and it turned out to be little. Your accomplishments, all the cool stuff that you bought, your paneled house, maybe sex or drugs or whatever it is you tried, expecting a big payoff, it didn't. Not that you got nothing from it right? Um, You get moments of pleasure and satisfaction from serving yourself. But in the end, you realize that it was all ultimately unsatisfying and lacking in meaning and purpose. And then God asked that question, why? Why have you found your life to be this way? Why have you not found what you were looking for? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. See, God's people who set out to return from Babylon to rebuild the temple of God have become sidetracked for their own purposes. There was some opposition. Their neighbors didn't like what they were doing. The neighbors thought that God's people were being too narrow-minded in their worship of God. Then there was some difficulty in the governmental area, and they gave up on the project way too easily. Because really, they had better things to do anyway, like make improvements to their own house. But as much as we can blame these people for getting their priorities messed up and neglecting the call of God in their lives, when Haggai brought this message from God, they responded correctly. Haggai chapter 1 verse 12 tells us how they responded when, the, when God sent his prophet. It says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek. They always give these long names with all their parentage and all this, but anyway, here it is. And the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God 
and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. A couple of important things there. First of all, they recognized that this was the voice of God speaking to them through the prophet. And they obeyed. And why did they obey? It says, because the people feared the Lord. And that that fear of God, that's a common theme in the Bible, right? It comes up fairly often. It talks about the fear of the Lord. But it's, it's one of those concepts that's a bit hard for us to really understand what it means to fear God. Are we supposed to be afraid of God and run away from Him and try to keep our distance? Or are we supposed to just have some kind of respect for God? If, if all we're supposed to do is have respect for God, then why doesn't it say respect God instead of fear God? Because it very much says to fear, to be afraid, and that's a weird way to just say respect, right? So here's an explanation of what it means to fear God that I find helpful in understanding the way we are supposed to feel toward God. We should fear God the way that a surfer fears the ocean. Surfers know that big waves are dangerous. In fact, they know and understand about undertows and riptides and the power of a six-feet wave a lot better than non-surfers do. When I used to live in South Africa, I spent a few years in, in Durban down on the Indian Ocean coast, big surf town there, and I tried to learn how to boogie board down there on those Indian Ocean waves, and I never got very good at it, but I had a good time. But one time I had this uh, crazy experience trying to dive under a wave, and uh, the wave spun me around underwater to the extent that I didn't know which direction the surface was. That was a bit of a scary experience to actually get uh, disoriented so much under, underwater and getting thrown around and not even know which way to go to, to reach air. Um, surfers know how waves can do that to you, and they can do a lot worse, too. They can throw you onto the rocks, smash you into the sand. Surfers have a healthy fear of the ocean. And surfers learn to read the waves and decide whether it's safe to go out on a particular day when the wind is blowing and the waves are extra big. The saying among surfers that I heard quite a few times, even had signs at some beaches that said this, the saying is, if in doubt, don't go out. Which means if you stand there and you're looking at those waves and you're not sure whether you have the skills to handle those, stay on the beach. But, Here's the thing, does this knowledge of the power of the ocean and all of its dangers cause surfers to run away from it? Do they go stay up in the mountains because they know that the, the ocean is dangerous? No, they can't wait to take every opportunity to get out there and enjoy it. They love the ocean. They're drawn to it. But they do have that respect for the power and the danger, and they have that appropriate fear of the waves. And they don't treat the ocean casually and, uh, and, and without that, uh, that appropriate understanding of it. And that's how we should fear God. 
we know that God actually is dangerous. God is the most powerful being in the universe. He spoke the whole universe into existence, including the waves of the sea, which are nothing to him. He is the ultimate power in all the world, and he is going to judge us at the end of our lives. God has the power of heaven and hell in his hand. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, said this. He said, I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But that fear should not cause us to avoid God or to run away from Him or to cower from Him. We should be drawn to God, just like surfers are drawn to the sea. We should love God the way that surfers love to surf, because although God is dangerous, He is also good. He loves and cares for us. He wants to justify us at the judgment. That's why he sends prophets like Haggai to warn us about our failures. That's why he sent Jesus to die for our sins and to provide the means for our forgiveness. So we should fear God and yet also be drawn to him, but, but, but we should do also what the people did here in this verse from Haggai. The whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. God told them to get their priorities straight, that they needed to stop working on their own house and work on his house. And that was what they did. They obeyed. They went right back to work on the temple. And this time when their neighbors and the government officials tried to oppose the work, they just wrote letters to the king, sorted it all out, continued on the work. In fact, the king ended up supporting them and sending them finances to help. And when they got back to work, Haggai brought them a word of encouragement from the Lord. Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. So do you see how that works? He says, be strong and work, for I am with you. God doesn't do the work for them. He doesn't just say, okay, you guys just sit back, I'll take care of everything. He doesn't even make the work easy for them. But he is with us in the work. Be strong and work, for I am with you. And when God's people are working on the project that God has called them to do, then the emptiness, the lack of satisfaction, the unfulfilled hunger is no longer there. When we do the work that God has called us to do, we find fulfillment. When the priorities of our life are on building the temple instead of building our own lives, we have better lives. We find joy and contentment and a sense of purpose and meaning. Building the temple is the work that God put in the people's hearts to go back to Jerusalem to do. 
But of course, here's the thing, right? Uh, this was many hundreds of years ago. That temple was built and completed, and, and eventually it got old, and it, that temple actually was replaced by a much bigger, better temple by King Herod the Great. And then that temple was destroyed by the Romans when they invaded almost 2,000 years ago now, and they wiped that one out, and it has never been rebuilt. And that's all ancient history. So what does this have to do with us today? Right? God called those people uh, to build his temple. But what has he called us to do? Or has he called us to do anything? Do we just get to work on our own houses and attend church a few times a month and, and, uh, and, and put a little money in the offering? Are we so unfortunate that we don't have a great project to work on that will give us satisfaction and purpose in life? Well, in the New Testament, we find that God renews his call on the people to build. And what are they supposed to build? They are to build God's temple. Just like God called the comeback kids to build his house, he has called us to exactly the same task. And it comes up in several places in the, in the New Testament where we are told, you are uh, bricks in a new temple being built as a house of God. It comes up, uh, the one passage we're going to look at in some detail here is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says in verse uh, 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So we are the temple of God, and we are being built up together to become the house where God's Spirit dwells. And each person has a choice of either contributing to the building up of the temple or to doing it harm. And we will be rewarded or punished depending on what we have done for or against God's temple, which is the people of God. The apostle writes here in, in 1 Corinthians 3 about his own work in this matter. This is starting in verse 10. He says, By the grace of God, or by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. What Paul is talking about there, when he says he laid a foundation and someone else is building on it, he was the one who came into Corinth first and started this church. He laid the foundation of it. He was the one who, who uh, first preached the gospel there and, uh, and helped people to find salvation. And now someone else is building on it. That means there's other pastors and other people ministering in Corinth now. Paul is not, no longer there and other people are doing the work. And each one is building on that, that church. They're building up the church. And he says, But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So who is he saying should build with care? Each one. Each one should build with care. Now, if you read the context there in 1 Corinthians, he's mainly talking about in the context there this guy Apollos, who was another pastor who was working in Corinth, but, 
But he broadens it here. In this verse, he says, each one of you should be building with care. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Now, he's being quite metaphorical here in talking about building up the church and talking about actual building materials that you might use to to construct it, but the point here is that for everyone who builds, the quality of their work will be tested at the judgment. That is, one part of the final judgment will be when God looks at the work that we have each done on the project of building up the church, and he will check the quality of the work. And then verse 14, it says, If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So we see here that this judgment that he's talking about here is a judgment of rewards, not a judgment of salvation, right? We know that uh, we're not saved from our sins by doing God's work. We're saved through our faith in Jesus. But we will still be judged based on our work on the great project that God has called us to do. Our work on the temple will be judged and we will be rewarded to different degrees based on how well we worked. Now, why does God tell us here that there are rewards to be had for good work? Well, it is to motivate us to do good work, right? Some people um, try to uh, be all uh, above that, oh no, we do the work just for its own sake. We're not motivated by any rewards or anything like that. But that's not the way the Bible treats it. The Bible makes promises of rewards, and he makes promises of rewards with the expectation that that will motivate us to do good. But all this is is still metaphorical, right? What are we really talking about when we say that the people of God are the temple of God and that we should be building God's temple? Well, it means to build the church. And maybe that could mean actually working on the construction of a physical building every now and then, but it is much broader than that. It means that each of us should be contributing our own work as God has enabled us to do our part in the growth of the church. And by the church, I mean Clearwater Church. Each of you has been called by God to help Clearwater Church to grow. And that means you should be doing what you can to help us grow both in numbers and in maturity. We are to be getting the gospel out to new people who are not yet followers of Jesus and helping to lead them to Jesus where they can find salvation. And then help them to get plugged in here at Clearwater Church where they can grow into mature followers of Jesus. And of course, we already have many mature believers in our church who need to keep on growing. And the people who are already part of our church also need to be built up. And this is done through relationships through prayer, through the various ministries of the church. 
when you volunteer in the ministries of Clearwater Church, you are going up into the mountains, cutting down lumber, and bringing it back to build the house of God. And when you contribute finances to Clearwater Church, you are building God's temple. And yes, certainly this goes also way beyond Clearwater Church, right? Uh, there are many other good churches all over the world, and even right here in Anchorage. And as we work to build God's temple, some of our labor, some of our labor will go to helping other churches too, and other ministries that are working to build up the people of God and see His will done in the world. So now, here is the big question for us all today. Whose house are you building? Are you building your own house? Or are you building God's house? When we build our own houses we find that life never gives us back quite enough. We sow expecting a big harvest, and we receive little back. We find that selfish priorities lead to disappointing paydays. But when we put our priorities right, and we work to build the temple of God, then we find meaning and satisfaction and ultimately eternal reward from heaven or from God in heaven. In your, uh, your little song sheet packet thing, there are some sermon notes in there, and there are also on the back page of that some discussion questions to talk about the themes of this uh, sermon this morning, the themes from the book of Haggai. And I encourage you to find somebody to talk about that stuff with, maybe your spouse or another family member or a friend or somebody, and, and talk about those discussion questions. Or at least uh, think them through on your own if you can't find somebody to talk to about them. But go to those discussion questions and see how you can do better at building God's temple rather than building your own house. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us a great and noble task to do that will bring meaning and purpose and joy to our lives. And I pray that you would help us to not be distracted by opposition from the world around us or by the other things that life offers, but that we would Put the right priority on building your kingdom and not ours. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.